Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we do keep you up to date with all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. This week, we're going to take a look at a company called AirGrid. I'm sure you've heard of them. They're a company who affect all all our lives on a daily basis, but who are they actually and what do they do and why are they so critically important, especially to our tech life? Niall Kitson went to meet their manager of scenario planning. Her name is Marie Hayden and started by asking who are Airgrid and what is their role in Irish life? So Airgrid has a number of different roles, but let's start with Airgrid, the transmission system operator. And in that role, what Airgrid does is it keeps the lights on 24-7. So in this building where we're meeting today, we have the National Control Centre, and that's staffed by engineers around the clock who are trying to make sure that the demand for electricity is met with the, the right supply at all times, that that balance is maintained, and that the high-voltage electricity grid is operated in a safe and secure manner and allows the transport of electricity from the locations where it's being produced to the locations where it has been consumed. Um, so that's Airgrid's real-time operation role as a transmission system operator. Um, as part of that role, we also plan the long-term development of the grid, so identifying how the grid is going to be used into the future and whether or not today's grid needs to be augmented in any way to support that sort of future change. Airgrid is also the operator of the wholesale electricity market in Ireland and as such we um, manage the day-to-day pricing of electricity and uh, we're actually in the process of implementing a new electricity market which will go live next year and that electricity market uh, facilitates greater trade at an EU level of electricity across the borders that we have uh, today with Great Britain. So on understanding the nature of the energy market at the moment, you sort of um, allude to it kind of being modular, free-flowing, almost sort of energy as a commodity. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think energy is very definitely a commodity. It has some unique properties. Um, Probably its most unique property is that uh, today, at least, it can't really be stored in any uh, large-scale way. And as such, the demand for electricity has to be met instantaneously uh, by supply. So we predict that the demand for electricity in half an hour's time is going to be 3,500 megawatts. But we have to have 3,500 megawatts of generation on the bars, as we say, uh, at that point in time. And if we say it's going to increase by another 100 megawatts, we have to predict that you know, over the next 15 minutes and schedule generation to, to increase its output to meet that demand. So as a commodity, it has that rather unique property in that it's instantaneously consumed and scheduled. One of the interesting things uh, I found in researching this piece is the idea of the energy grid as sort of something that's continuously evolving and growing because I think most people don't really devote an awful lot of time to it and they think, okay, the grid is a bunch of wires running into houses and you're done because electrification happened in the 1950s and that's kind of it. So how do you see the grid as something that's um, sort of a living thing? 
Well, the grid is a fairly large piece of national infrastructure, not unlike the road network. So, and it does grow um, and expand and change over time, uh, like the road network. So we have seen over the last 20 years in Ireland, for example, the development of, of things like the Port Tunnel and uh, motorways down to all the way to Cork and uh, Galway and other cities. And the grid similarly undergoes those types of um, Evolutions is probably the best way to describe it. The grid has been around probably since Ardner Crusher was built in 1927, so it's been there for over 90 years, and it obviously has changed a lot over that period of time. The things that drive the change in the grid tend to be um, the location of electricity generation. So if you look back, say, um, as I say, Ardner Crusher, the founding of the state, well, the, the grid ran from Ardner Crusher to Dublin, basically. Uh, and then if we move it forward into the development of peat power stations, then we saw a lot of transmission grid developed around the peat bogs, um, collecting the generation and moving it to where it was being used. And the usage of electricity has typically been concentrated around the large cities of Dublin, Cork, Galway, etc. Um, if you move that now then into the, say, uh, the 60s and 70s where there was a lot of oil fire generation that was then located in places like Cork and Tarbert and West Kerry and again grid infrastructure rolled out there we moved to uh, Money Point Power Station in the 80s a big grid development project there associated with connecting Money Point to Dublin and in the last 20 years we've probably seen a lot of the evolution of the grid uh, around the connecting of wind farms in remote parts of the country uh, and bringing those collecting that generation and bringing it back into the grid for uh, distribution on up to the main load centres. So the grid is always changing and the nature of the grid is always changing and it's largely historically been driven by those shifts in where generation is located on, on the island uh, and those shifts in turn have largely been developed um, and driven by government policy. I suppose if we look forward, the big question is whether it's going to be driven by government policy are consumer choices and I think that's sort of the next revolution on the electricity grid is how much of the grid development is going to be driven by what consumers uh, are doing and how they're interacting with the grid at an individual level or an aggregate level and how much electricity they're generating for themselves. I think part of that um, element of choice that people are particularly interested at the moment is the way in which their electricity is generated. I think people are very much um, enamoured with the idea of just going towards renewables, you know, Wind, solar, and and wave have such a an, a beloved place in the popular consciousness at the moment. Especially when we're seeing moves like you know electric cars in England by twenty thirty, all in France by twenty forty. You know these sort of, for want of be- a better term, roadmaps are in place in Ireland because the energy market is is markedly different. Um, to which extent do you think we're still going to be relying on fossil fuels? I mean, it, it must be very hard to stick a needle on a timeline and go. Okay, this is where we go all renewables. I mean, how viable is that shift in the short to medium term? I suppose if we look back at where we've gone in the last 10 and 15 years and then maybe map out the next 15 years, you know, we are now at a position where last year 25% of the electricity was consumed in Ireland from renewables, and, and that was probably down around 5% if we go back 15 or 20 years. Uh, out to 2020, we're trying to get that increased to 40% to meet certain renewable targets at a government level. 
If we move all the way out, say, to 2050, at 2050 we want a power system, this is under Paris agreements now, we want a power system that effectively has virtually no carbon emissions. And the carbon emissions tend to be associated with those fossil fuel power stations, gas, oil, coal, etc. today. So one way or another we're going to see a major reduction in the amount of those power stations connected to the grid, um, and they will be slowly replaced by renewable technologies, wind, solar, offshore wind, and probably some storage as well, and interconnection plays a big part in that, and interconnection with the European grid and uh, the grid in Great Britain as well. Um, I suppose the way we look at it, though, is that there is a technical challenge on the grid, and that technical challenge is that uh, the intermittency of a lot of those forms of renewable energy, wind and solar, they're on one moment, they're gone the next, um, that doesn't really match with this point I was making earlier on about needing to be able to generate electricity when it's needed and not be able to store it. So that's one of the technical challenges. The other one is that those forms of technology, uh, they, they don't stabilise the power system in the same way as a big, the big rotor that sits behind a big power station, say in Moneypoint or Pubeg, Ahada, any of those types of power stations, have a physical mass connected to the grid which stabilises it. And if we lose that mass or that inertia, as we call, call it, uh, this grid becomes extremely vulnerable to disruption. So uh, a small fault could cause a big blackout. And of course, uh, that's not what we want in this country. That's not what any modern power system wants. So at the moment, those technologies, those big power stations still have a role to play. And the question is, can we decarbonize them? Can we find ways to capture the carbon or reduce the carbon that they are producing? And can we find a way to really minimise the amount of that type of generation we need on the system so that we can have an 80% or 90% renewable energy system out by 2050? So when we're sort of, um, I guess, speculating about the, the nature of the technologies that we will be using, there's also the question of how we will be using that energy. You, you made the point earlier about consumers sort of driving, um, you know, what predictions you can make. So I, as a scenario planner, tell us a little bit about the considerations you make in um, putting together a, a forecast. So we look at both sides, the generation and the demand. So I'll talk a bit about the demand because I've covered some of the generation already. So the demand for electricity, uh, if we were to categorise it, we've got sort of domestic level demand, um, and that's household demand for electricity. And so how do we see that changing out over the next 10 to 30 years? Well, one of the big and obvious ones, and you've mentioned it, is the uh, electrification of our transport sector. So people using electric vehicles, uh, charging those electric vehicles at home. That's a whole new appliance, if you like, that we're bringing into our homes. Similarly, we see things like heat pumps, for example, as a way of electrifying the heating sector. And again, they would also uh, be coming into a lot of homes. Now, on the flip side, we see that there's a lot of uh, progress being made in insulation and energy efficiency and people changing to, uh, to LED light bulbs. So what we're trying to do is package all of those things together and say, well, what's likely to influence, for example, the adoption of electric vehicles? And we know that in other countries, uh, subsidies has been a key issue. Um, obviously, uh, incentives like I think in Sweden or Norway where you can drive in the bus lane if you have an electric vehicle, things like that. Um, and we look at what's in place in Ireland today, and there isn't a huge amount there. There's some there, but there isn't a huge amount there. So, um, But we do see that electric vehicle adoption rate is going to change very substantially, particularly around the 2030 mark. Um, where the technology will be cheap, where the um, range will have increased so people trust electric vehicles and um, 
where there will be incentives in there in one form or another. And the incentive could simply be that it's very expensive to drive a petrol engine car because petrol is very expensive. It doesn't mean the EV is subsidised. So we would examine all of those things which have influenced the adoption of electric vehicles in other countries and ask ourselves and ask experts in this area, when do we see that adoption rate playing out in Ireland? And we consider everything from low adoption to high adoption of electric vehicles. And as a scenario planner, um, we also would do the same for things like heat pumps. And we try and link these things into um, what we call cohesive or internally consistent stories. So, for example, our consumer action scenario has a lot of electric vehicles, it has a lot of heat pumps, it has consumers uh, generating their electricity with solar PV panels on their homes. And it's all saying, look, you know, we've gone out to 2030, we've gone out to 2040, and consumers are driving the revolution, not just policy-led, large industrial-scale revolution. So I guess in, in looking at some of the reports you've been working on, does it come down to the very basic factor of it's the economy, stupid? The economy's a big part of it because the economy drives population growth, it drives investment, it drives usage, in fairness. A very thriving economy, people are more likely to spend money and consume more. But... What we have always seen in the electricity sector is that whilst the economy and the demand for electricity are very closely aligned, the supply side of electricity, the generation of electricity, tends to be very influenced by policies, whether they're national energy policies or increasingly now it's European Union policies and climate action policies in particular. So the demand side can be quite linked to the economic performance of the country, but the uh, generation side is often linked with uh, national policy. Um, we made sort of a, a quick mention there to um, markets sort of outside the Republic, if you will, that the current energy market in Ireland is sort of an all-island strategy. Um, of course, this is going to face a, a significant challenge now with the advent of Brexit, where we're going to see possibly tariffs with trade with the, with the UK. Um, what's your take on this sort of going just specifically from the north-south interconnector? I suppose the first thing with Brexit is we have to ask ourselves, is it likely that Brexit is going to result in tariffs on electricity trade? And it certainly doesn't happen in other countries, in non-EU countries like Norway and Switzerland. So they trade electricity without tariffs across borders with EU countries. So, you know, you would expect that Brexit doesn't result in that. But of course, as a scenario planner, you have to ask yourself, well, it might. So... In terms of the North-South interconnector, that interconnector is driven by uh, effectively trying to make sure that we have the best all-over, most economic power system on the island for consumers in the North and in the South. And it's driven very much by you know where generation is located. It's driven very much by having a secure power system. And it's very hard to see a business case for that being jeopardised by something by Brexit. Um, there will still be a need to flow electricity between the two jurisdictions. Northern Ireland isn't necessarily going to be self-sufficient, we're not necessarily going to be self-sufficient, but together we could be. And that sort of together, we're a stronger thing, works very well in the case of, of the electricity system here on the island. And, and I think that's characterised by, if you look at the market today, we have this all-island market, as you mentioned, the single electricity market. And that the whole market design and the, the price for electricity on the island is the same, whether you're in Donegal or Derry or Cork or Waterford. Every half hour, there's a new wholesale price 
uh, calculated, but it applies to the island on the whole. And it's actually quite separate from the market that's in Great Britain. So there's no uh, direct link between the electricity market of Great Britain and the electricity market of Northern Ireland, uh, even though they all sit under the umbrella of the United Kingdom. So I think... um, that's because it makes an awful lot of sense on this island that the electricity infrastructure is developed on the island as a whole. I don't think that's really going to change with Brexit. Um, I think what you might see with Brexit is a bit more pressure on us to build interconnection to EU countries like France, and, and there's certainly a project underway at the moment looking at that. Again, I still see a future for electricity interconnection with Great Britain, as well as Northern Ireland. We could still see additional interconnections to Great Britain. They're our nearest neighbour. Um, they represent a very big marketplace for us uh, in Ireland, and with or without Brexit, I could see those interconnectors coming into play as well. But I think having an interconnector to an EU country will remain an important uh, feature of the of the future electricity system here. So, looking at that um, French project, I mean, are there any um, precedents in the European market where energy is being treated um, uh, so freely? I guess. Well, there's a huge amount of interconnection in place already in the European electricity grid. Um, Most of that interconnection is quite straightforward because it's a line across a border and uh, it's not as big an infrastructure project as when you're trying to build a subsea cable from Ireland to France a couple of hundred kilometres long. So there is a significant amount of interconnection across Europe today and interconnection across the Baltic states and that would be subsea cables. And obviously we have interconnection today in Ireland between Ireland and Great Britain. So... um, yeah, there's plenty of examples of it, yeah. And just a little bit on your own journey um, from engineering into scenario planning. Um, I, I imagine it was a, a fairly circuitous route from A to B or A to C, as the case may be. Um, how has your own journey been? Yeah, I started my engineering, uh, I did my engineering degree there in UCD a long time ago. I don't really feel like talking about years at this stage, but uh, I came straight into ESB and into the national grid part of ESB, which later became AirGrid when we were separated out. And so I've worked here for over 20 years and I've had a number of different roles in that time. Um, I've worked, for example, in the construction of new transmission assets for a number of years and I was associated with a lot of um, infrastructure projects around the country for in that role. Uh, I worked in the National Control Centre myself as a shift engineer for five years. I worked on the new electricity market as it was then, <clears throat> the same market back in 2007. And in the more recent years, I've worked in the commercial area of AirGrid, where we enter into connection agreements with generation and demand customers. And we saw a big growth, for example, in data centres seeking to connect the grid in that period of time. And I oversaw that piece of work. Um, And I think what that did was it all put me into a good place to move into a role like scenario planning. So scenario planning is new for AirGrid. Planning isn't new, but scenario planning is new. And with scenario planning, what we're trying to do is get an awful lot of stakeholder input into those assumptions we make about the future usage of the grid. And I suppose my background in the grid and knowing how it operates and understanding the commercials behind it uh, put me in a good place to, to manage that section. But it's not just me, as you can imagine. There's a team of bright young things in the team who uh, lead a lot of the work. Um, and an awful lot of what we do is really pulling stakeholder input together into case of uh, data sets. So, it's, it's, as I say, it's not just me. <laughs> and uh, when we talk about stakeholders, um, uh, I imagine it's not just businesses uh, you're dealing with. No, uh, the stakeholders would range a lot from everything from government bodies, the Department uh, of Climate Action and uh, Communications, um, 
the Commission for Energy Regulation, obviously we are looking and talking to other companies like ourselves that operate in Europe and use scenario planning just to understand how they approached it. Uh, we talk with associations that represent groups like IWEA, which would be the Irish Wind Farm Energy Association. ICEA would be the solar equivalent of that. Board Nimona, ESB. So all of these players in the industry who have, for their own reasons, have to make predictions about the future. Um, you know, we've also talked with universities um, and the ESRI about economic projections, population growth. So we have a very wide range of organisations that we've engaged with. And we did a public consultation on these scenarios as well. So we managed to receive some input from the public as well onto the scenarios. So, yeah, it's quite a wide range. And when you're looking at the likes of Board Nimona and the ESB, sort of companies that in the past would have had a big interest in fossil fuels is that mindset changing how quickly is it changing that you know the sort of the penny has dropped if you will well I'd see with both companies um, I mean they're both actually quite at the forefront of some of the renewable energy development projects in Ireland and both companies have been involved in uh, investing in renewable energy so they're certainly not lagging in that regard Um, I suppose for Borden and Mona the big challenge is how long can we continue to burn peat in our power stations and how do we exit that that business um, and yet uh, continue to you know utilize the bogs appropriately and the employment that's there and Bordemona have been co-firing uh, some of the uh, peat power stations with biomass and maybe in some of our scenarios we would see those uh, power stations converting to burning biomass instead of peat and they'd be very engaged in, the, in that development opportunity. ESB similarly have a lot of renewable energy projects in Ireland and abroad and uh, you know I would see both companies as being you know very much leading the way and it's certainly not lagging if, if that was the question I think they're both moving forward in ESB they have a big a challenge in respect of Money Point Power Station. It's a, it, it generates 900 megawatts today by burning coal. Uh, when we go out into 2025 and beyond, that would become an extremely expensive business for them because the carbon tax or the cost of producing carbon would make that a very, very expensive way of producing electricity. So uh, working with the government, they're trying to identify what is the right next step for for money point and is it to convert it to a gas fire power station or, or other options like biomass or you know even further afield there might be other options as well so um, you know I think they're working closely with the government and of course with their own uh, shareholder if you like on, on how they're going to develop the business there. And that was our Editor-in-Chief Niall Kitson talking to the Manager of Scenario Planning at Airgrid, Marie Hayden. That's it for our show for this week. Remember, you can get more on all the Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from techcentral.ie as well as our weekly tech radio show online and broadcast every Friday at 6 on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.